MSW Media. Federal prosecutors have charged hundreds of insurrectionists who participated in the assault on our Capitol. Why aren't they doing more to bring all of the perpetrators to justice? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name's Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, the host of The Patty Vasquez Show, who joins us regularly on this podcast. But before I bring in Patty, I want to thank our patrons who brought us this episode. With special thanks to Andrew Donnelly, James Frohmeyer, Jay Gelhausen, Jamie and Izzy Gordon, Patrick, Angela Jackson, Ari Lamstein, Dan Maruska, Shana Wachinski, and an anonymous patron. You too can become a patron on our website, ontopicpodcast.com. Just click the support link at the top of the page. So, Patty, you know, we talked last time about all of the potential legal issues that that arose from this attack. And I I have to say, even though hundreds of people have been charged, I think it's just raising more questions, concerns and doubts in people's minds over whether or not enough is being done in response to this historic attack on the Capitol. Well, and so much of that has been fueled by these calls for unity or let's not let you know let's not impeach because it's too divisive and people are tired we need a culture of accountability and we can go back in just the last 50 years and see time after time where whether it was nixon who was pardoned or the iran contra hearings you know we people are tired of it and we just it, and we also have a lot of people involved in this who go back to those those moments in our, our our near history who've been involved and have led us here, really. Yeah, I have to say uh, I have no patience or affection for the argument that, hey, uh, to help everyone heal, let's let bygones be bygones and don't don't pursue this matter with Trump or other people. I have to say I agree with you that that in this country we take we're, I think we were taught to take responsibility for our own actions. That is how I was raised. And the rest of us, when we do something that is a problem, uh, we have to take responsibility for what we did. And sometimes it has consequences for us. So be it. Here are people, in my view, who are public leaders, whether you're the president or a member of Congress or a senator or anyone else who is in public life. I think you have a greater responsibility and you should be taken uh, to you know, to uh, account by your, the voters, by the citizens, by the government, to if you do something that is unlawful or unconstitutional. So I really, in this case, this is such a serious assault on our government and our way of life. Uh, I think absolutely that we should investigate this, and every piece of this should either be whether it's criminally prosecuted to the extent possible. But if not, there needs to be a public report. And I think that we need to be putting pressure on our public leaders 
to shun. And frankly, we need to turn out and vote against anybody uh, that had played any role in this insurrection. Well, it, it does seem, though, that Republicans continue to be masterful when it comes to messaging, because just the fact that we have several electeds who are QAnon all-in believers uh, gives you more, you know, more of an indication, of not just the people who are in office, but the people who voted for them. So, the, you know, yes, I agree. Getting more people out to vote, you know, obviously Georgia is the best example of that, of of being dedicated to making sure that people not only are registered to vote, know where to vote, know their rights. All of that's important. But I continue to be worried about, you know, the 70 over 70 million people who voted for Trump again and all of their family members and all the and then, of course, the extremists. And I just don't I, I think this is going to have long term effects. I think that a lot of people have been emboldened by what I mean, what looks like a success, a successful terrorist attack on our capital. And thankfully, it wasn't worse. Yeah, I got to say, Patty, you know, one thing that has had an impact on me is, well, I've talked before about family members that I have who voted for Trump and are have bought into a lot of the disinformation. But, you know, just there, there's people who are on my Facebook feed, people who I went to high school with, college with, with, whatever, who believe the most bizarre things now, uh, that they have been so deceived by disinformation that they, you know, there's there's a guy that posted about how, you know, Trump has already been secretly inaugurated for a second term, that there's a firing squad that's going to kill Nancy Pelosi for her crimes against whatever, um, that there's, you know, all sorts of bizarre allegations of child abuse and other things uh, amongst members of Congress. You know, all sorts of nonsense conspiracy theory sort of stuff that to any rational sane person would say, hey, whoa, uh, this is really out there, uh, is getting spewed by all sorts of people. And I've got to say, as you point out, Patty, this is turning into, this is beyond a bunch of crazies just chatting away. This has turn, been turned into action, violent action against our government to overthrow our government, to prevent the peaceful transition of power in our democracy. Uh, I think these people are going to be a problem for years to come. And what I worry is if Trump decides that he's going to focus more on his golf courses or his legal problems or whatever else, there's going to be some new charismatic totalitarian type leader who tries to snag these people and turn them into his flock. Absolutely. And, you know, they've already started to fill that vacuum. You have these young legislators and whether it's Holly or uh, green, I don't know her full name and, uh, and the woman from Colorado it's funny because I, they started to get more of my attention in the days before, especially the newly elected. And they're, you know, they're very uh, aggressive videos about having guns and screw your feelings kind of things um, was the tone that we've had for four years. And that has gotten stronger, I believe, uh, in the aftermath of the Capitol attacks, where people are really digging in, uh, chasing all these false stories again Everyone was so eager to find there had to be it had to be Antifa. They couldn't possibly have behaved this way on their own. And the facts don't sway them at all. And that's disturbing. Yeah, I've got to say one of the most hilarious lies that they've told is the idea that left wing activists were trying to prevent Donald Trump from losing the power of the presidency and having it transferred to Joe Biden. I mean, the, that idea is absurd. <laughs> 
uh, on its face that these that that left wing pe- uh, progressives were disguising themselves in MAGA hats and spewing hatred against Nancy Pelosi and and so forth. It's absurd. Yep. Uh, but you know that's that's you know these are people who have been convinced that one plus one equals three or the sky is not blue. So there, you know, it's it's more of a religion or a cult or whatever you want to call it than anything that you can understand in terms of just you know it's not the sort of evidence based uh, belief system uh, to to put it kindly, um, but I will say, uh, Patty, I mean, I think that you know what people are also starting to see is that this this issue of how we deal with this attack is not going to go away. You know, we have a coronavirus crisis we've got an economic crisis we've got a new president that's got to get his entire administration uh, confirmed and so forth and at the exact same time i think for months uh, not years we're going to be dealing with criminal cases other types of civil investigations other things into this attack and and trying to figure out how we can set this country in a better path and ensure that everyone is brought to justice so let's bring in Ken White. You may know Ken White, especially if you're on Twitter, as Pope Hat. Uh, he is a very frequent commentator on legal news. He's got a couple podcasts of his own. I'll ask him about those. He has his own newsletter. Uh, he is all out there on legal things. But he's somebody who I respect a great deal because he's very careful and thoughtful and accurate in his legal analysis. And I think that's important here because a lot of you have asked questions that get into the weeds of some of these legal issues. And I really wanted to have somebody who would be able to dig into the weeds with us and make sure you got sort of an accurate picture. Ken is also a first amendment expert uh, who practices a lot in first amendment law. And I know that some of you have questions about everything from the, my pillow guy to the insiders of insurrection. So uh, Ken will help us with those questions. So now let's bring in Ken White. Welcome back to the podcast, Ken. Thanks for joining us. Well, it's great to be back. Thank you for having me. So, Ken, I I will tell you, it is not a coincidence that I invited you on uh, because there have been hundreds of arrests and very wide, uh, sprawling investigations of the attack on the Capitol, which was obviously just a disgusting, heinous event that I think will go down as an infamous chapter in our nation's history. Um, but I think it, it raises a lot of challenging, complicated legal issues. I've been getting a lot of questions about it. I know you have as well. And I think there's some very interesting issues to explore. I, I think one starting point might be, I think it, it, it would be to help people understand why it is that you're seeing a lot of people charged with things like unlawfully entering federal buildings uh, versus being charged with all of these very fancy sounding crimes that we've heard about on Twitter or on television or whatever, like sedition and treason and whatever. Right. You know, why hasn't, uh, why haven't they brought charges against 10,000 people for felony murder, that type of hot take. Exactly right. You know, Renato, if there's any, constant theme to the work we've been doing, uh, you and I, on different places uh, on this whole administration. It's that uh, the law is what it is, not what you want it to be. Uh, I think that's kind of the response to a lot of the sort of 
what's become wish casting about what should happen to these people that's not replacing but supplementing the wish casting of what should happen to Donald Trump. Yeah, I and just to be crystal clear, I have literally no um no love whatsoever for these um jagoffs who attack their capital and try to disrupt our lawfully operating government and the peaceful transfer of power. And I think they should be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law and should be universally condemned. Uh, but as you, exactly as you point out, we are a nation of laws. Uh, and I believe in the rule of law, uh, regardless of who the person on the other side is. And I also believe in telling the truth to my listeners, to my followers, to everyone out there, the public, because I don't want there to be unrealistic expectations about what's going to happen. Well, exactly. And in criminal law, as elsewhere, uh, you don't burn down the village in order to save it. So, yeah, I think it's a fascinating and, and multifaceted topic because these are so many different people doing so many different things. And you don't just treat them like a tweet. Uh, it's actually kind of complicated what you can and can't do. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's it's interesting. Patty has been collecting uh, questions from listeners, and one of them, I think, encapsulates why I think it, we're opening with this discussion on, the, uh, on this vein. Patty, do you want to pose the question just because I think it feeds right into what me and Ken have been have been talking about here? So, you know, people are obviously eager. They want to know, when do we get to the serious charges? It seems ridiculous that people can get charged with unlawful entry and disorderly, disorderly conduct when they actually just tried to overthrow the government. Yeah, and I can understand. That's a great question, and I can understand why people have that reaction. One thing I'm going to just point out that's obvious before kicking this over to Ken, who will answer this, I think, in a more fulsome and comprehensive way, is it's a lot easier to prove that somebody unlawfully entered a building than it is to prove some grand conspiracy about overthrowing the government. In other words, once you enter a, a building unlawfully, and, and in particular, there's a federal statute that if you enter unlawfully for the purpose of uh, interrupting or interfering with government uh, operations, that's a federal crime. And that's simple to prove, right? You just you get some video of the guy walking in and that's it. You've, you've made your case as a prosecutor. Um as long as it's the same person, you've got them. And then the judge at sentencing, and we'll talk about this more later, can take into account all of the circumstances around that. Uh, but it's it's much harder to prove these more serious crimes. Uh, and there's also, of course, serious challenges, First Amendment issues and other reasons uh, why uh, some of these uh, more serious uh, crimes might not be charged. I, I absolutely agree, Renato. And I, I think there are a few factors going on here that people don't necessarily immediately see. Um, one is that it is not at all unusual, particularly in developing situations, to charge more modestly and cautiously first in a complaint and then to charge more expansively and aggressively later in an indictment when you've had a few more weeks to develop the evidence and uh, assess what you have and you know what you can realistically prove. So I think that's going to happen with a number of these people. Uh, a complaint, of course, is something where you just have to take an affidavit showing probable cause to a United States magistrate judge and they sign off on it. Um, that's fairly low impact. Uh, a indictment, you have to go to a grand and jury, but it's not at all unusual in my experience for the feds to um, do the complaint quick, dirty, and narrow to get someone arrested and then go more expansive in the indictment. 
the other factor I think that's going on is that uh, federal prosecutors, in my experience, tend to be more conservative in, in the legal sense and cautious uh, in bringing charges than state prosecutors. There's a culture that I think is more averse to losing, particularly in high-profile cases, and um, I think they are more prone to only want to charge the cases that they think uh, are not only winnable but highly winnable. Uh, than the equivalent with the DAs. So I think right now they're just going around picking out uh, the the low-hanging fruit, the people who have uh, admitted to things on video and posted it. Uh, and believe me, this is a complete, you know, this is a six tractor trailer truck crash of low-hanging fruit uh, out <laughs> there. And they could probably do nothing but that for months just getting idiots who have admitted to federal crimes uh, on social media. I think we'll see the more complex stuff and the more important stuff developing. I think you'll see maybe some felony murder claims, that we sh but that we should talk about the limitations on that, and the more serious charges coming over time as they've had more time to do it carefully on the things that are going to be more of a challenge to prove. That's right. I mean, it, just in contrast to what I referred to a moment ago, where it's like, okay, proving that the person unlawfully entered federal property, which is going to be trivial for a lot of these folks who are bragging about it on Parler or Instagram or Facebook, um, you know, proving that somebody conspired to uh, whatever assault Mike Pence or whatever it is, you know, you can imagine some 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 charge that that you know, based on some of the things you see on social media. You have to prove the state of mind of that person. You have to prove that they were working and agreeing with others, that they actually were actively, seriously moving forward with something like this. Uh, or let's say that they knew about uh, some very serious criminal activity and they helped make it succeed in some way. You have to you have to prove something that, uh, as you point out, Ken, is often going to require further investigation. They might get search warrants on their cell phones. They might you know, obtain interviews uh, with others and you try to piece together an entire picture. And you may only be able to make those more challenging cases against a fraction of the others. But nonetheless, uh, as I mentioned a moment ago, the judge can can take into account all of that at sentencing. And I will say that, you know, there are differing views about whether or not uh, it's right for the government to charge, you know, lesser crimes, let's call them, I don't say they're lesser, but they're, they're, they're less serious crimes and nonetheless present the evidence of more uh, serious crimes at sentencing under a different standard of proof. In other words, the standard of proof at trial is beyond a reasonable doubt. The standard of proof at sentencing is just by a preponderance of the evidence and the judge really can consider any and all information about the defendant and the circumstances of the of the offense and so forth. And so you could imagine a situation where a judge is looking at a defendant who's only been convicted of unlawfully entering federal property to disrupt uh, operations of the government, but determines that since the person was chanting, hang Mike Pence and doing others saying awful things on social media, that the judge is going to take all of that into account and raise the sentence uh, because of the what, what, what legally what we'd call the nature and circumstances of the offense, I think that's exactly right. And I, I I think we are going to be dealing with um, 
the U.S. Attorney's Office on a, a number of occasions trying to get the right result, not by um, charging felonies, or uh, but by seeking to get some sort of relatively brief custodial sentence uh, that you normally would not get for a misdemeanor. Yeah. Or, or they'll charge a felony that I, I wouldn't say that it's ticky tack, but is more narrow, right? Right. And then say, you know, you get a five or 10 year statutory maximum, and it's the sort of thing that you might get probation or 90 days for usually, but the person might get a substantial sentence because of all of this other stuff that the judge should consider. But in other circumstances, people have criticized this practice, and this is how federal criminal law works. So this is commonly done, but it's often the case that, for example, uh, 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 prosecutors and I, you know, uh, my former office and others do this where there's, you know, there's a gang leader out there who's engaging in violence. So, but it's much easier to prove a drug conspiracy. So you charge him with a drug conspiracy and then present all this other evidence at sentencing and try to have a sentence that's driven by conduct that was never proven at trial before a jury and so forth. Right. And, and I think you're right in suggesting that how we feel about this may depend on uh, who is getting charged. So right now, there are a few jurisdictions where they are trying what, in my mind, are extremely over-aggressive charges against Black Lives Matter protesters um, that I think are, in my mind, a good example of how this could be abused. And so I think uh, even though most of us feel a lot of contempt and outrage for the people who I don't hesitate to call um, domestic terrorists uh, attacking the Capitol, I think it's right to be cautious uh, about how we want the feds to exercise power about stuff that has any component of speech to it. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And that's the challenge here is that, um, you know, our, we have a very strong First Amendment uh, for a good reason. Courts have, have read into the First Amendment a lot of strong protections with the understanding that if you don't have a robust, open debate and you don't give people the opportunity to speak their minds, even if it's something that's very negative towards government figures and so forth, and, or negative, negative towards our own government, our own democracy, uh, you know, ultimately we may, we, we may lack the freedom that we enjoy now because the government could twist uh, the, you know, could twist the laws to use it to prosecute, for example, political enemies. Right. Right. So uh, Patty, I think we have another uh, good question from our listeners. As always, we do. Uh, they, the other listener wants to know, can the FBI get a geofence warrant to identify the people in the Capitol? I read something that said previous rulings found that geofence warrants violated the fourth amendment. Is that true? Well, th this is a great question. It's one that I know a lot about because I used to be kind of a specialist in uh, phone location uh, technology. When I was a federal prosecutor, I used it a lot uh, and helped many others uh, in that area. What I would say is this. So the feds can get a warrant to track your specific phone if they have probable cause that you are engaged in criminal activity and that the phone would reveal evidence of the criminal activity. In other words, that your location will be relevant in, in some way. So in other words, um, you, uh, if you're a drug dealer, your, your location may be relevant to prove you're at the scene of a drug deal uh, or a bank robbery, for example, but it's not relevant for the CEO who we already know is at the office anyway. Now, 
this geofence technology they're talking about, what they're essentially talking about is there are methods by which the government can obtain, let's say, the, the uh, phone identifying information for all phones at a spe- in a specific uh, in a specific vicinity. Geofence, it may very well be that there is such there is something like that in the capital. I don't know for for a fact that that's the case, but I wouldn't doubt it if there are press reports. But this sort of question has arisen in in other scenarios where there's things called cell tower dumps, where essentially the government says there is a um, there is a uh, uh, you know we believe there's a bank robbery that happened right next to the cell tower. We want to get all the cell phone numbers that are there. So here's the thing. The government can get orders for courts that give them information, but it's typically in a very limited fashion. In other words, to they want they have to be able to generally be able to show that all the information that they're requesting is limited to information that would pro- provide them with probable cause that the um it, that that uh that would re- reveal information that would provide probable cause that a particular individual committed a crime in other words if i already have the phone number for somebody who i believe is the bank robber i could do a cell tower dump to determine whether or not his phone number was or you know whether there were phone numbers associated with him that were located at that cell tower but i couldn't be involved in a phishing expedition where i don't know who the hell robbed the bank and what I'm going to do is I want a dump of the cell tower so that I can go through everyone's phone numbers and try to, you know, question everyone who was there or um, run criminal history searches or things like that. Now, this is a little bit more complicated because potentially everyone at the Capitol who's not a staffer uh, or an authorized visitor during that period of time may have been committing a crime. But I do think it's it's more complicated, at least for criminal law purposes. It may be different if they're not planning to use this in court uh, uh, and they're doing it for national security purposes. But for criminal law purposes, it's 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 generally something where you can't just get everyone's cell phones. What, what's your view on that, Ken? Yeah, I agree. So to, to put it another way, I, I think there's real doubt and I think cases suggesting they can't just sweep up uh, the information of everyone who happened to be at the Capitol at that time. But um more to the point, I'm not sure they want or need to. Uh, this isn't a situation where, you know, some unknown person uh, out of 10,000 did something and we don't have any data that might help identify who it is. This is something where uh, the vast majority of these people are on camera, um, are posting uh, things online, and that they, they've been very successfully swept up that way. So I'm not sure it's the sort of scenario where they'd even – typically want to use that type of technology. I, I think as they start to delve into some of the more serious crimes, like the um, murder of uh, the Capitol Police officer, and have more challenges in being able to say exactly who swung uh, the fire extinguisher or whoever you know committed the actual crime, then we might see some more aggressive types of uh, tactics. But I I don't think we've established yet that they're going to need to use unusual or or legally questionable tactics to do that. That's right. I think for the for the crimes that we're seeing right now, the only time where I think that could come up is confirming identity. In other words, for a lot of these crimes, as I said, they're very simple to prove. And really, the main issue is identity. 
So here we've got some cell phone video or we have video from the closed circuit cameras at the Capitol. And it looks like it's your client or it looks like it's you. Okay. Um, well, if the, the defense position is no, that that's actually not me. That's somebody else. Uh, it may look a little like me, but you know, you can't really, you know, I look different with my hair down or whatever. It's just not the way I, that's not, that's not me. You might be able to, you, I could see a getting a cell tower dump or some, or whatever geofence, whatever you, whatever, uh, technology you're going to want to do to confirm that the phone number that they say they had on them at the time is, was, you know, was, or was not in that cell tower. I think that you could do something like that, but it would be pretty much limited to that type of situation. Yeah, I agree. Now, one thing I think you have mentioned a few times, and I think is a really important concept, Ken, is felony murder. And I, I think it's a term that I've heard a lot about, uh, Lately on Twitter, people talking about it. Of course, it's often been used controversially um, in, and has been used predominantly um, to charge people who are in uh, who are black and brown people with crimes uh, and, and greatly enhance sentences. Uh, so it's, it's a controversial concept, but a lot of people now are eager to have that applied in this case, and it could very well be applied but I think it's got some important limitations. Right. So the, the classic scenario of felony murder is that, uh, you know, a 16 year old, probably black or brown kid drives a car while some of his idiot cousins knock over a seven 11, somebody gets shot and the kid who is in the car winds up doing life in prison on a felony murder theory. So the idea is that when you're committing a certain set of crimes, if anybody gets killed in the course of it, then you're on the hook for murder. Sometimes even if it's a police officer shooting one of the people doing the crimes, you're on the hook for murder. So, but it's limited in the federal uh, context, um, Renato, because there's, there is a felony uh, murder statute, or that is to say a, a statute governing murder in um, federal jurisdiction. And, for this felony murder theory that it's murder if the person's killed in the course of a crime, the crimes are more limited in the federal context than they are in many state contexts. So there's a enumerated list of crimes and things like sedition or trespassing or interfering with the uh, operation of Congress aren't among those things. Probably the most credible um, item on the list of the statute, it's 18 United States Code, Section 111, I believe, is burglary. So, you know, the idea if you break into some place intending to commit a felony, that uh, that can be potentially felony murder. And, you know, I could see theories on which that might apply here. Uh, but just because it's a thing doesn't mean it's a thing in this particular circumstance, again, because of the narrowness of the felony murder concept as applied in federal law. Yeah. And, and I will just confess, I never charged felony murder when I was a federal prosecutor I, and I was a prosecutor for almost a decade. It it was charged by my office, by other prosecutors. And my recollection is that it needs to be foreseeable to the defendant in some way that the crime would have resulted in or could have resulted in the death of a person like a robbery. The 7-Eleven you mentioned is an example. If you're going to burglarize or rob someplace it's foreseeable that somebody could die in the commission of that. If you're committing uh, wire fraud, maybe not. Uh, but is that is that right? 
That's right. And wire fraud isn't one of the enumerated crimes in the felony murder statute anyway. So sure. uh, it, it has to be something that's in the statute. And then it has to be there's an element of proof at trial about the uh, foreseeability of it uh, th that goes to the elements of it. But I mean, let's face it, Renato, I mean, the, the feds charge very, very, very few murders anyway uh, of any kind. Um, and uh, so this is unusual for them and uh, even more unusual, I think, to use a felony murder theory. And, uh, you know, a, a many U.S. attorney's offices can go uh, a year or more without ever charging any sort of murder because it's not something that's usually in federal jurisdiction. Yeah, that's right. It's just not people uh, think that, OK, federal charges are always more serious. And they certainly there are very there are a great many important charges that are federal. Many public corruption cases are federal uh, are federal charges. Uh, there can be, uh, you know, RICO charges brought against organized crime or gangs or things like that. But as you point out, violent crimes are usually not always, but usually uh, state crimes. And that means things like murder and or sexual assault, things that are, you know, highly, highly important crimes are happen at the state level. There's not a division about who gets the important crimes versus the unimportant crimes. Sure. Yeah. And, and now, Patty, I think we actually have a question for our listeners along that line. We, of course we do, because the listeners are asking great questions today. Uh, it seems there are similar charges in D.C. Superior and District Courts. Is the distinction federal versus state charges? Will people get charged in both courts? If not, how do they decide which courts for which people? Yeah, that's a great one. Uh, and of course, there's there's also a, a policy that DOJ has related to that as well. Uh, Ken, do you want to take that one? I, I'll confess, I'm not very much up to speed on exactly how they handle this in D.C. I've seen that I believe some of the charges that are brought so far have mixed uh, the different types of charges. But uh, I, uh, I'm not sure how they normally decide this. Are you? Well, I will say I in D.C., um, in, in D.C., I, I don't know specifically, but I will just say in terms of how the Justice Department operates. It is often the case that, that criminals commit both federal and state crimes at the same time. And you often coordinate if you're a federal prosecutor with state prosecutors and you try to, uh, you know, get on the same page regarding how you're going to charge and who's going to charge. Some people are better done, better charged at the state level. They, they, the state's better equipped to bring charges for the, some of the reasons that, that you brought up, Ken, for example, you know, maybe that they assaulted somebody and that's just a more straightforward state charge than a federal charge or whatever. Uh, or uh, it may be better for the feds to charge uh, certain individuals. And sometimes you can charge them with both. And so there is a policy that, you know, the policy that I was thinking about, uh, Ken, was the Pettit policy, um, you know, which is just a uh, or which is just essentially a policy that following a state prosecution there wouldn't be a federal prosecution for the same action in the absence of a compelling reason. So you can technically charge people for basically the same thing in federal and state court. And when I say basically, what I mean is this, it's a, you know, fraud is a state crime, fraud is a federal crime, as long as one element is different. So there's a wiring in this, the federal statute, you technically could charge this person for the exact same thing in both places. But 
that is generally not done by the Justice Department, by this what's called a pettit policy, unless there's a good reason to do it. And they may, and maybe that this, in the state court, they didn't get the right sentence, so there's some other reason why. But usually these things are, be, because of that policy and other, and just for the u- better use of resources, usually things are divided up between the two entities. Yeah, I, I'm just not sure exactly how they'll handle it here when you've got uh, you know, the United States Code versus various D.C. ordinances and, and specific issues. Uh, it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, the, the, the pettit policy you're referring to has come into play in things like the, uh, the cases against the uh, uh, police officers here in California who beat Rodney King. So it was a consideration of whether or not there was a compelling federal interest to prosecute them federally after they'd been uh, prosecuted by the state. Uh, here, I mean, in, in my view, it's a little different because it's something where it's the the the, the same jurisdiction, really, and it's a, and it's all the federal government. Um, I think they may use it to achieve more flexibility in terms of what charges are available, uh, but I think they're going to want to do a lot of them federally. Uh, by federally, I mean under the United States Code and by the traditional federal U.S. Attorney's Office wing rather than the prosecuting D.C. local crimes wing of the U.S. Attorney's Office, uh, just because of the, the type of control they want to keep over it and how they view it. Yeah, one thing that that Ken is alluding to that I want to make sure our listeners understand is that in most jurisdictions, let's say here in Illinois or in California where Ken is, there is a state government with state prosecutors who are really an entirely different entity. And the way I was talking about coordinating um, is uh, how prosecutors here in Illinois coordinate, and I'm sure how they coordinate in California, um, or at least how they seem to coordinate in cases I've handled out in California. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> unfortunately for clients, um, but in D.C., the United States Attorney's Office handles state prosecutions as well. So, you know, for example, there's a legal commentator, uh, Glenn Kirshner, who constantly commentates about various issues. I often disagree with him, but nonetheless, he was a federal prosecutor in D.C., but he was mostly, if, if not entirely, focused on state crimes. Most of the prosecutors, or a good portion of them over there, are focused on state crimes because there is no D.C. state uh, prosecuting authority that I'm aware of separate from the United States Attorney's Office. Right. So it's a, it's a U.S. Attorney's Office, but it in effect has different divisions, uh, the way I understand it, with different cultures and, and things like that. And I've known people coming from both elements of that office. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. One thing I think it'd be also worth talking about and particularly important to get your views on, Ken, is because you're also an expert in First Amendment law. You handle a lot of First Amendment cases. And there appears to be some sort of D.C. investigation of the role of people who incited uh, the uh, terrorists who attacked the Capitol. And I'm curious as to your view of that uh, particular uh, investigation and the potential liability for people who are insiders. Sure. It's a great question. And I think because of everyone's feeling that this was historic and absolutely outrageous, that there really, there's a, there's a hunger for accountability and a feeling that maybe that should be the methodology. So for incitement, uh, the basic rule, and it's been this way for more than 50 years under uh, Brandenburg versus Ohio, is that to be incitement unprotected by the First Amendment, 
you have to have speech that is intended and likely to cause imminent lawless action. And I think that what happened on January 6 is it's like a law school exam written by a law professor. It's that improbable. It's that extreme. So I think it really is one of the most um, plausible examples of potential actionable incitement outside the First Amendment by some people that we've really seen um, in mainstream America since Brandenburg even. So when you when you have the because I mean that whole analysis of, of what is intended and likely to cause imminent lawless action is very context driven. And so some of the factors here I think are the extreme anger of the crowd, um, the prevalence of violent rhetoric uh, among people who are in the crowd leading up to uh, the speeches on January 6th, um, the proximity of the speeches to Congress, uh, some of the violent or, you know, I, I think winking at violence elements of the speech, and uh, the way that the people speaking have acted in the past, have talked in the past, and are seen by the crowd. So um, whether Trump or any of the other people who are speaking to the crowd that then went on to, again, commit what I view as domestic terrorism, um, whether that is incitement outside the First Amendment, I think is a closer call than we would really expect to see from people of that nature. Uh, if you told me in you know, 2010 that we were going to have the president of the United States committing potentially actionable incitement, uh, then um, I think that uh, I would not believe you. But this is a historic occasion, and I think that it's by no means an easy case that anyone, uh, anyone prominent committed actionable incitement. Uh, I think it would be a, a very genuine and difficult First Amendment defense, but I also think it is a plausible argument that they did. You know, and I got to tell you, tell you listeners, that's remarkable to hear Ken say that. I mean, you know, I learned Brandenburg versus Ohio in law school, just as I'm sure you did, Ken. You know, the bar is very high. Uh, you know, Brandenburg was a case where you have like a guy, I think it was at a KKK rally or something, uh, but it wasn't imminent. So, you know, it's OK here. The fact that we even think of this as a close call under the First Amendment is remarkable. And it just shows you how outrageous and how how foolish uh, and dangerous uh, the the speech was. It, it is really the sort of thing that does make you pause and consider, right? you know, because it was pretty damn imminent. They talk about the Capitol during the speeches. You know, we're heading to the Capitol, and then these people march to the Capitol and commit crimes right after. And it was kind of hilarious, actually, Renato, uh, that Rudy Giuliani, in talking about this, said something effective. Well, it can't be incitement because they had to walk like half an hour to the Capitol. Uh, I mean, that was almost like a confession of some of the elements of incitement. It was ridiculous. Uh, yeah. So if you will uh, indulge me um, in a, a very brief plug, the, the last episode of, of my podcast, Make No Law About First Amendment History, is about Brandenburg versus Ohio and all the circumstances there. And really the reason that that uh, group of Klansmen um, 
bloviating about how there should be, uh, in their words, revengeance. Uh, the reason it wasn't uh, it wasn't incitement was that they were out in the field in the middle of nowhere, and there was no one there for the mob to go get, and uh, there was no call for immediate action or likelihood that immediate action was going to happen. I think the modern example of really actionable incitement that's the clearest is some of the conduct at the uh, Charlottesville incident a couple of years ago, where some of the people were literally whipping up white nationalist crowds saying, those people right over there, go get them. That's classic actionable incitement. It's intended and likely to cause an assault and the insult is immediate. The question is, um, where does uh, the stuff with Trump and others come out? Uh, I, I think you have to say that there are some very smart, smarter than I am, First Amendment experts out there talking about this, and they don't all come out the same way. Uh, Eugene Volokh, who's probably the, the most justifiably prominent First Amendment scholar in the United States, thinks that it doesn't quite reach Brandenburg. Uh, another of other people disagree. I would just say I don't think it's clear, and that's almost never what I say about incitement. I get asked about, is this incitement? What about incitement? almost as much as I get asked about RICO, and 99.9% of the time I'm saying, no, it's obviously not incitement. Here I have to say, eh, I don't know. I mean, if it were a DA, they would take a shot at this absolutely. They would roll the dice. Would a U.S. attorney roll the dice on this? Um, I, I, think, uh, I think it's a close call. Yeah, I think it's a close call too. I have to say that I definitely think that's why I think it's the D.C. attorney general that's looking at this. I mean, they very well could roll the dice. And I could see a U.S. attorney's office taking a, a shot on this just on the because, you know, I think the mentality that I had uh, seen when I was a federal prosecutor was we're going to husband our reputation, the reputation of this office very carefully and be cautious, as you, you indicated. But when it really matters we're going to put ourselves out there like, hey, this child is getting molested and it's a it's a, a difficult case. We may lose. We'll take a shot on this one because it's so important. And I think this is the sort of case that I could see a federal prosecutor saying, you know, this is so important that I'm going to I'm going to roll the dice on this one. I think that's right. I, I think, you know, the the swiftness of the charges here and the number of charges uh, against people doing this is very unusual and uh, historically notable. And I think it's because this was such an extreme event. You know, the attempted violent invasion of Congress that could very plausibly have led to the deaths of legislators, legislators by people who disagreed with what they were doing. And I think that's why the U.S. Attorney's Office and the federal agencies are going so hard. But I think there's a flip side to that, too. Um, you know, the like from the wire, if you go if you go after the king, you best not miss. I, I think there's a sentiment that it would embolden um, terrorists, white nationalists, those sorts of groups if you brought not well considered charges and they were thrown out or people were acquitted. So I think that's going to motivate to some extent uh, exactly why they're not. You know, some of the people saying, oh, discharge everybody, um, why that's not going to happen. I think they realize that precisely because this is such a horrific and extreme event that they have to be careful to go with plausible, uh, winnable charges. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, along those lines, uh, Patty, I think we do have a question from our listeners that talks about a kind of a separate issue of accountability with the Congress. 
Well, obviously, we have a lot of questions in regards to whether or not some of the, the Congress people helped these terrorists. If members of Congress help the people who attacked the, attacked the Capitol, do they have to be expelled by Section 14, 14A, Section 3, before they can be charged? And would a conviction expel them automatically and bar them from running again? So my answer to this is, as like a lot of the stuff about this very several, uh, rarely invoked constitutional provisions, I don't know and you don't know either. <laughs> so um, I think that if members of Congress uh, agreed to help people do illegal things in Congress, then that is conspiracy to commit a federal crime and that's prosecutable. Um, but I think what happens under the 14th Amendment, under this provision that says that um, you know people who uh, engage in, tre in treason against the United States um, uh, can't, shouldn't be seated as members of Congress, I think it's more a political question than a legal one. Uh, it's more about like uh, like uh, impeachment. It's more about uh, how Congress is going to vote than it really is about what the law requires. So, yeah, <clears throat> the way I would come out on that is I agree with you, Ken, that um, if they committed a federal crime. So let's just say hypothetically there's been allegations made that certain members may have helped surveil, you know, uh, for the uh, for the uh, uh, terrorists or that they you know, gave them some guidance beforehand, helped them prepare. You know, if you if uh, if you were agreeing to act in a conspiracy with these people to help them, um, you know, enter unlawfully to disrupt uh, the lawful business of government, that's going to be, you know, you, you very well can be charged with a federal crime. Or if you knew what they were doing and aided them in some way, you'd be aiding and abetting. And that that's going to happen regardless of your status as a member of Congress. One important distinction, though, I will I will do is I'll distinguish between people who did what I just said. Like, for example, if you were, you know, helping people surveil or give them tours so that they could know where to go once they broke into the Capitol and you knew that that was the purpose of it, that's one thing. But if all you did, if you're someone like, let's say, Josh Hawley and putting aside in the incitement, let's just say, you know, the speaking that he did on the floor of the Senate that you have a speech and debate clause issue there where right, right. You're, you're not going to be able to be prosecuted merely for what you said on the floor of the United States Senate or the United States House of Representatives because uh, of that constitutional provision. And I also just think it's problematic uh, regardless, even if that provision was somehow whited out of the Constitution, it would be problematic for their mere statements that they're making exercising their duties to, you know, object to certification, although I think it's reprehensible and contrary to our democracy and un-American and everything else. Um, I think that, um, you know, that would be problematic prosecution, even if that provision didn't exist. Yeah, I agree. So we're, we're not plausibly talking about anything on the floor of the House or Senate uh, <laughs> being addressed criminally. Uh, but outside of that, I mean, uh, you never know. But I think it's important uh, for us to take into account there's a lot of bad information floating around like there is any time uh, there's um, something this shocking and historic. And I mean, if, if you think that's going to get uh, go away soon, just consider that we're, we still have 9-11 truthers uh, almost 20 years later. So I think we're going to continue to see that. But I think in terms of real charges, um, we should wait for real information and, and see what comes out. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's notable that members of Congress believe that, you know, one of them said recently that 
some of their fellow members were playing weren't on the home team were playing for the visitors. Right. I mean, that's that's really something. And I think that's newsworthy. And it's, I certainly have retweeted stuff about that because I think that is just notable that that's how some members of Congress feel. And if they there are some members of Congress who really believe that the the uh, terrorists were aided by the fellow members like that's serious. Those are serious allegations that I don't think that they're making lightly. Um, they they believe it. But in this country, uh, you know, uh, people are are uh, we, we expect the government to prove uh, charges and we don't uh, we don't go, you know, go after people based merely on uh, allegations. Yeah. And, and speaking of going against the king and not missing uh, the Department of Justice and the various U.S. attorneys offices have records of uh, encountering very bad consequences when they go after members of Congress and it not working out for them. So I think uh, that's a place where they tend to be um, a, a little cautious. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I think one other issue that is that we should talk at least briefly about, um, because it's, it is it is somewhat related to this topic, is you know the, 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 these, this attack was really instigated by all the disinformation artists and uh, their ilk who spread so many untruths to begin with, right? The people who are like like Trump himself, who are convincing millions of Americans, including many I know, of all sorts of crazy conspiracy theories and really sowing distrust for our government and, and our electoral process and so forth. You know, we have seen of course, one of the consequences of that being uh, various defamation threats that, you know, the threats of defamation suits that have been brought, particularly by the uh, Dominion voting systems folks against a variety of folks, news outlets, uh, the right wing news outlets like Newsmax and so forth. But uh, more recently against the MyPillow CEO. I'm curious what your thoughts are as a, somebody who's, who handles a lot of uh, defamation cases, what your reaction is to, to that particular uh threat of a defamation suit? Uh, you know, it's interesting. I, I, the Usually, um, and I've made this point about Dominion's threats against people uh, like Sidney Powell and Lynn Wood, usually it's very, very difficult to maintain a defamation suit in the context of political controversies. And that's because defamation has to be a provable statement, uh, a false statement of fact. And that's distinguished from rhetoric and hyperbole and opinion. And one of the uh, areas where statements are especially under likely to be understood by courts as being rhetoric and hyperbole and opinion is in the arena of politics. So normally when someone is out there at a political rally saying things about you, courts will bend over backwards to say, you know, people would understand that to be rhetoric and hyperbole in the context of a political campaign. The difference here with the stuff about Dominion is that these people uh, framed so much of it as very specifically factual, things like how, you know, it's being run out of Venezuela and, you know, Hugo Chavez, uh, operated it and possibly is still operating it from hell and so on and so forth. Just, just stuff that's, that is factual and false. Um, so you get over that hurdle fairly easily, uh, very unusually for political circumstances because they're making these absolutely batshit crazy, pardon me, um, factual statements about dominion that aren't just opinions or characterizations or facts. Uh, 
Um, but then you get to the slightly tougher thing, which is that to the extent you treat a company like Dominion as a public figure, and so uh, they have to show actual malice when they sue, the cloudier and more difficult question is, what do you do when the defendant is just stone crazy? What do you do when you have people who sincerely believe completely crazy things that are factually wrong? Uh, okay, and that question, whether the actual malice test is subjective or objective, uh, is a little cloudier than normal. So you see with Dominion, when they're going after Sidney Powell, they are they are hitting this head on and very cleverly. They are basically saying Sidney Powell is a grifter. She knows these things are factually false, and she's doing it for money, clicks, and attention. So they're they're hitting that head on, and they are avoiding <laughs> the more complicated legal argument about well, what if she's crazy and she believes this stuff? I think that gets tougher uh, when you get to uh, the my pillow guy who who genuinely seems. Uh, you know, a, a whole plate full of sandwiches short of a picnic. Um, and we, we really start to get into this this area of, well, what about someone who sincerely believes that these absolutely crazy stuff is true? Normally, that doesn't get litigated because usually you don't sue the crazy person uh, because it doesn't come out well. But sometimes, you know, it's so essential to your survival, and I think this is the case for Dominion, that you have to go after them. And so the tricky thing here will be, um, is it actual malice uh, if this person um, had in front of him every indication in the universe that this stuff was completely false and disregarded it? With a non-crazy person, you say that's actual malice. But what do you do with an unbalanced person? You know, I'm not confident. I know for sure how courts will sort that out. Yeah, it's, that's fascinating. First of all, just I will just say this is another area because of how the First Amendment lies that usually the answer when there's a lot of there's been a lot of defamation suits over the during the Trump era. And usually the answer is this is going to go nowhere. OK, for the most sure. part, a lot of these um, because uh, how First Amendment law is. But this is one where because these people are literally stating crazy false things that are very factual in nature, it's it's very plausible. In other words, Dominion's got a much stronger case, and there's very significant harm uh, to oh, Dominion yeah. as well, because half the country thinks that they're an unfair voting system. They'll never be able to get adopted by many states if half the state legislators or whatever, you know, believe it is politically untenable for them to use Dominion. Might as well use a different company that doesn't have a taint on it. So their entire their entire um, business may be on the line. But what I find interesting here, you know, with so you, you know, you mentioned Ken the actual malice test. Well, the actual malice test, just for our listeners' benefit, is you know that you knew something was false or had reckless disregard for the truth when you made the statement. That's essentially the test. And the idea there is the 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 courts, the Supreme Court, in a very famous case, New York Times versus Sullivan, articulated that case. That standard, and the idea was to have a robust public debate uh, by making sure that people could say things, unless they were really trying, deliberately trying to be false, um, that people could just speak and not have to constantly look over their shoulder for a defamation claim. What I think is interesting here, and I did comment on this um, on Twitter uh, the other day, was, you know, they did something that I have done for <laughs> have done for clients who. Uh, believe that they were being defamed is send a letter to the other side saying, here are all the false things you said. 
here's why they're false, here's all the evidence and so forth. And most of the time when you send such a letter, you know, the other side tells you to buzz off, but it, it nonetheless can modify their speech going forward because they now are on notice. They can claim before they got the letter that they didn't know all of the specific evidence that you were pointing out. But now that they have the letter, you can go to the judge and say, look, I literally laid out for this guy all the evidence proving that what he said was false. And he kept saying it. And of course, we have the my pillow guy on video, you know, as you point out, you know, totally insane, uh, just saying, oh, I actually have 100 percent evidence that whatever the Hugo Chavez, I don't remember his all of his crazy conspiracy theories, the Chinese, whatever his argument is, is going on with Dominion. And so, yeah, I, I, I guess I think a court's going to find very persuasive the fact that, you know, this guy's the CEO of a company and he got a letter that explains to him why everything is false and he just doesn't give a crap. It sounds a lot like reckless disregard for the truth to me because he he has the resources. This isn't like some poor protester who's work, you know, who's living uh, paycheck to paycheck. This is a guy who has the resources to check up on things. It sounds to me like reckless disregard for the truth, but I'm not the First Amendment specialist here. Well, yeah, one thing that's important here is to point out that the terms actual malice and reckless disregard for the truth have special meanings that might be a little different from the common meaning of the words. So malice and actual malice doesn't mean ill will or hatred. It means knowledge that it's false or reckless disregard as to its truth. Uh, and reckless disregard as to truth and falsity doesn't just mean you did a terrible job um, of researching something or you didn't have good reason to think it was true. It's it's not as broad as the term reckless normally is. It very specifically means that you had in front of you a deliberately disregarded um, convincing indications that what you were saying was incorrect. So it, you, you can't get to reckless disregard just because you look something up, you get it wrong, and you put it out there. You, you have to deliberately ignore powerful evidence that what you're saying is wrong. Uh, and the question is, what if you still subjectively think that it's true? And I think that rather than engage that legal issue, what they're going to continue to do, Dominion, is try to show that these people are grifters. And fortunately, um, I think that's a very plausible argument that they're both, if they're crazy, they're also grifters just because of the way they act and talk. Yeah, I think the my pillow guy sold a lot more pillows because he uh, is on Fox News all the time and doing all this crazy stuff for Trump. <laughs> well, sure. Uh, I never heard of my pillow before this. That's for damn sure. Um, well, one last one last ish question that's come up, and I'll just say it to you is, you know, Patty has mentioned some of the listeners are interested in this because the part there's potentially pardons coming out today. Whether secret pardons are really a thing, and there's been a lot of discussion and. Uh, stuff about that. Uh, pardons can't be completely secret. I will just say uh, it can't be like Trump just says out loud one day, you know, while he's while he's uh, I was going to say jogging, but I don't know if he does that. But walking, walking <laughs> through the walking through the White House, uh, he can't just say, you know, I pardon uh, whatever I pardon Jerry Kushner and then never, never tells a soul or memorializes it. Uh, I what 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 is required uh, do, to the extent that you know uh, Ken because this is also something 
listeners that is not highly uh, litigated. It's not a huge topic of conversation because typically presidents do this in a very formal fashion. There's actually an office of pardon attorney at the DOJ, and it's, there's usually at least some formality, and there's a, 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 a kind of a certificate of sorts uh, that's, that's issued and, and so on. Sure. So um, this is complicated just because uh, of how pardons are treated, how broadly they're treated. I think it's pretty clear that you can't just, you know, like on the office, say, I declare bankruptcy and then you're bankrupt. I think similarly, you probably can't just say, you know, I pardon this person. But um, there is, a, you know, a little unclarity about how a secret pardon would work. Now, secret pardons are a staple of techno thrillers. I think Tom Clancy used them a lot, but, you know, it's not clear that they've ever been used by actual presidents and there would be a risk to secret pardons. So uh, the problem with Trump, for instance, um, writing a pardon for himself or Jared Kushner or something and keeping it in a safe is that there's a uh, historical precedent and some legal precedent for the concept that a pardon isn't effective unless and until it's delivered to somebody. So uh, there were some people uh, that uh, Ulysses, excuse me, that Ulysses Grant uh, pardoned, and those pardons were not delivered to the jailer until the next president canceled them. And what the court said was, well, they were not delivered, uh, so they were not effective, and the next president could cancel them. So the risk, I think, and we're, we're dealing with very old precedent and very little of it. The hazard of a secret pardon would be that uh, the next president could just do something saying, you know, any secret or undelivered pardons by President Trump are hereby void, and, and that might do the trick. So it would be a risky thing to try to do. But, you know, w when we're dealing with pardons, there's so little legal authority about it, and almost all that legal authority points towards maximum broadness of the president's pardon power. Uh, so, you know, if, if you could think of it, maybe the president can do it. We don't know for sure. Yeah. I think that that sounds about right to me. We had a pardon, uh, a professor who studied pardons, who said something very similar to that, Ken, about how broad the power is, at least on what we know. It's, it's very, there's not a lot of precedent, but, uh, if, if I, if I wanted to make sure that pardon was effective, I would find many ways of ensuring that that pardon was written down and confirmed by third parties and all sorts of other things to make sure it was crystal clear that Trump actually issued the pardon. It was actually handed over to Jared Kushner, let's say, in this circumstance. And and it was done you know, with witness of others. And this is an authentic sheet of paper, you know, showing that and so forth. If he's not actually going to announce it publicly, it just creates a, a definitely some hurdles and difficulties. Um, I, I, one thing I do want to say before we go, you know, you have a very unique voice, uh, and I don't mean that in terms of the, the tone <laughs> of your voice. I mean in terms of some of the, the, the issues that you comment on and what you say, and you're also somebody who is, is communicates to the public in a variety of different ways. You know, you have – I think you have a newsletter that I, I'm on. You have, you know, you're on Twitter, you're on, you've got podcasts. Can you, for listeners who aren't familiar with your work and have listened to this and are like, wow, I want to hear more from Ken White, how can they uh, hear more uh, of you? Well, I appreciate that, Renata. So I have a weekly show that I do with uh, Josh Barrow called All the President's Lawyers. It's on KCRW on Wednesdays and the podcast drops Wednesday nights. And uh, it's been 
for the last two and a half years sort of what's going on with Trump's legal entanglements, and it's going to continue with that and Biden's legal entanglements, which I suspect may be somewhat different in uh, kind and volume. Um, I have a First Amendment podcast uh, called, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, First Amendment podcast called Make No Law. That's about the history of the First Amendment in particular cases. And uh, I do uh, have a Substack, uh, the Popat Report, which, uh, as you uh, diplomatically implied, I have not done recently, but I will continue to do. Well, and, and on top of all that, you can follow uh, Ken on Twitter uh, under the uh, name Popat, which is an unusual moniker, but one that he has gone by it. The name changes from time to time, but but at Popat is the is the place to follow him on Twitter. And thank you so much, Ken. I really appreciate you joining us. It's I've always had I always have a great discussion with you, and I I uh, hope we answered a lot of people's questions. Well, thank you, Renato, and I uh, I, I appreciate and admire how you set things straight uh, online in this show and on Twitter and, uh, tell the people the truth about how the system works, which I think is crucial. Thanks again. Thank you for joining us for this episode of on topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti until next time. Let's stay on topic. 